Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. Well, good morning. It is great to be together on behalf of the staff. Thank you uh, both for the gifts and the encouragement this month that you have uh, shown us. It is a joy and a privilege to get to serve here full-time on staff, so we're grateful for that. Got a couple of thank yous uh, are just for celebrations. Last weekend, I invited you and let you know about our partnership this Christmas with the Pregnancy Resource Center. And if I'm honest, I was hoping maybe we'd fill out 50, 60, 70% of those needs. And then I'd be up here this weekend saying, hey guys, we're so close. Help us finish the, the, you know, cross the finish line. And Karen came to me at the end of last week and said, hey, every single one of those 60 moms and over 120 kids have been claimed by somebody, except this mom. So here's one for your family, which I was excited about because our family wanted to be a part of it. So thank you all so much for stepping up, for partnering to bless these kids and these moms um, through the Pregnancy Resource Center. So just a reminder to drop those off uh, in the next couple of weeks here in the lobby. Um, want to invite you, if you've never attended what we call our starting point, it's an opportunity for you to find out more about our story, who we are, what God's called us to, and what we believe, and then figure out, okay, if that's in line with what I feel like God's put on my heart or my family's heart and where he's leading us, how do I get involved? Starting point is the place to start. Uh, so I want to invite you to join me for lunch next weekend um, for two hours after this service. If you're interested, come talk to me. We'll get you signed up. It's in the planning center as well or church center. Um, but I'd love for you to join me for that lunch and I can share with you what God's doing here. Oh, don't drop the remote. All right. Let's see. All right. We're going to jump back into our series on Malachi this morning. And this week, we're going to look at the second disputation, the second kind of conversation that God has with his people. But to remind us this morning, or sorry, the focus of this morning is going to be the idea that a name matters. What we're going to see is God point out his name, the names actually, a couple of them that his people call him. And then he's going to point out how they're not responding appropriately. You see, names not only tell us something about the person who is named, but they inform the way we respond and what we can expect. This week, I found a series of interesting stories from freelance journalist Ash Gerberger. Did you know that originally, Pepsi was known as Brad's Drink? Brad's Drink needed a new name, and Pepsi, uh, and and what Brad's Drink did was settle an upset tummy, and so he thought, well, that's a bit like Pepsi AC, so I'll call it Pepsi. So next time you've got an upset tummy, drink a Pepsi, see if it helps. No promises. This is not an endorsement of Pepsi. Did you know uh, that Google, way back before it was named Google, was named Backrub? The idea was that it would rub back over uh, website links and create a list of them. Before Amazon, it was Kadabra. Now, when Jeff Bezos went to his lawyer and said, hey, I want to call it Kadabra, the lawyer heard Kadaver and said, that's probably not a great name. We probably need to come up with something different than Kadaver. Before it was Netflix, it was Kibble. Before it was Best Buy, it was Sound of Music. Before it was Yahoo, it was Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web. It's a mouthful. And before it was Subway, it was Pete's Super Submarines. Names are important, and what they change and what changes about them are important. And God, as we saw last week, told his people, I have loved you, I've chosen you. As we'll see this morning, as a result, 
They have names they get to call him. Names not only tell us something about the person, they also shape our expectations. For example, you probably would not show up to some of the, the nicer, nice, nicer, ni- fancier, nice, nice and fancier put together, nice or fancier hotels in town, let's say the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons in t-shirts and a short and sandals. You probably also wouldn't show up to Vic and Anthony's Steakhouse or Capitol Grill, two of the more expensive high-end restaurants, expecting a $15 sandwich. Names tell us something about what to expect. You don't go to the gym expecting to read books, and you don't go to the library expecting to work out. Names communicate what we can expect and how we should respond. Today we're going to see that God's going to point out two of his names, and the whole reason he does that is to then tell the people, this is how you should respond, here's how you're not responding, and I want to call you to return to respond the way you should. So as we get ready to dive in, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for the chance to be together with your church that you're building and that you're at work in. And so, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for the work you're doing. We're so grateful to be called your children, to get to call you Father, but then to get to call those around us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Lord, we would just ask that through your word, through your Holy Spirit this morning, would you continue to build us up into the, the individuals, the community, the people that you need us to be and desire for us to be, for your name to be made great. Pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, let's do a quick recap where we've come from. We're just starting the series, so in case you missed last week, we are in the book of Malachi, and uh, if you want a memorable reminder, it's Malachi, the Italian prophet Malachi. I shared that last week. Somebody this week's like, Daniel, we couldn't think of Malachi Wednesday in our Bible study because you got that stuck in our head. Well, here's another one for you. I'm not helping. Um, learned this morning from a, a sister here uh, that Malachi has a sister named Kalachi. <laughs> Sorry, had to get a work a dad joke in there somewhere. All right, Malachi, uh, Malachi, Malachi, now I'm going to get in trouble. Malachi is a minor prophet. That is not an indication of the significance of the message. It's just an indication of the length of the book. The minor prophets are shorter in length than the major prophets. So if you were to flip through Isaiah in your book, it takes a lot more pages than Malachi does. Now he's speaking for God and God's speaking through him about 430 BC. So there's a lot on this timeline. But if you look over to the right, you'll see Malachi there at the top. Contemporary we know of Nehemiah, maybe a contemporary of Ezra as well. The Jews have returned, they've rebuilt the temple, they've uh, been called back to worship God as they're supposed to under Ezra, they've rebuilt the walls under Nehemiah, and then Malachi comes on the scene. Now what's a little sobering about the context of this message is they've already been called by Ezra to worship God faithfully. And not too long after this, Malachi has to come on the scene and say, hey, remember that conversation we had? Through Ezra, we got to have it again and have different parts of it. So Malachi is calling them to worship as they ought to in the midst of all that's going on. All right, so it's a contemporary of Nehemiah. It's going, it's written to a group that are in Jerusalem and the hill countries of Jerusalem. So here, the central hill country of modern day Israel, of the land of Canaan. You'll see Jerusalem there uh, just to the northwest, I guess that is, of Jerusalem. Uh, just to picture this, Jerusalem is still pretty small and tattered. Most of the houses within the city by the the message of Malachi are likely not rebuilt. The wall is rebuilt and the temple's rebuilt, but neither have the grandeur of David or Solomon's day. Most of the people don't live in the city. They live in the country around it. There are a few very wealthy people who control all the money and the finances. And what you'll see if you read the book of Malachi is that, or sorry, of Nehemiah, is Nehemiah has to call them out 
for saying you're enslaving your own people. They're indebted to you and you're having them sell their sons and daughters to you to pay off that debt. So you've got some very powerful people, some very wealthy Israelites taking advantage of the poor Israelites within a context of famine and heartbreak and, and the economies in shambles. So things are hard. And so you might remember last time I shared with you that they are disappointed, they're discouraged, they're disillusioned. And as a result, we're going to see that they're also disobedient. Well, Malachi has six disputations. That's the legal word for six conversations back and forth. So God's going to lob a, a charge at them and make an accusation. Hey, this is true of you. The people, just like we would, are going to say, wait, hold on. That's not true of me. Like, prove it. We're not, we're not really that bad. And then God's going to come like, okay, well, let's talk about this. Let's have a hard conversation. And let me show you how this is true of you. So last week we learned that they, love had been lost. This week we're going to learn that worship, true faithful worship has been defiled. We're walking through this letter and last week Malachi set the foundation for us. The foundation of our relationship with God, of God's relationship with his people has always been his love. God chose his people before they chose him. God chose us before we chose him. While we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he reached out to us. So God's love is always the foundation. And as a result, we then get to call him new names that we'll see today, and we respond in worship to his love. We don't earn his love through worship. We don't earn his love through doing the right things. He has already loved us, and as a result, now we worship him. We're called to worship him faithfully. The other thing is, if you've got your your Bible open, and if not, you'll notice that at the end of last week's passage in verse 5, this was the, the last words we read were this. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Keep that in mind because this is a theme we will see throughout this letter. God's goal is that the entire world would know his name and worship him. And we saw that in the first disputation. And as you see in a second, we'll see it here in the second one as well. All right, so we're going to be looking at Malachi 1.6 through 2.9. This is the longest of the disputations in this book. So it's going to be a lot of reading today. Uh, But let's go ahead and start working our way through it. Verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how do we despise your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and and spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. It's a long section. Name pops up in that section eight times this morning. Well, the entire section is really broken down into two main sections. The first one is the foundation. It's the charge. The charge is, you have these names. You call me father and master. As a result, I deserve honor and reverent fear and awe. And the charge is those things aren't being given to God in the way that the people should. And so the message for them is one of rebuke. You're not doing it one of reminding them of what they're called to, and then one of invitation to return to that which they've been invited to do and called on to do by the Lord. Well, let's begin in the first verse then and begin to walk through this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my fear? In essence, you know how to honor your fathers. You know how to serve and fear your masters, and yet both of those are names you call me, and I get neither of those things. We'll see that built on here in a few minutes. Father was perhaps one of the most important roles in this period of the ancient Near East. To be a part of a father's household meant you were part of a community that cared for you, that watched over you, that protected you, that provided for you. To be fatherless in the ancient Near, world, ancient near Eastern world was almost death, like definite death or certain death. It was the most important identity in the ancient world to not either be a father or be a part of a father's household. That actually was more important than what tribe you were from or what community you were from or what nation you were from, but to be a part of your father's household was where the rubber met the road. Now in the ancient Near East, to have called God father was a bit of a, a weird idea. Now, some places did. We get by Job or, or by the father of Job from, from the Romans, but that Job was fickle. That Job would be absent. That Job didn't care. And indeed, much of the language we get of gods and father in the ancient Near East are gods who don't care, gods who are fickle, gods who are called father because it's a position of power or authority, not because of a position of choosing. God says, I am your father because I've chosen you. I, I've called you my own and I've called you my children. And that's the theme throughout the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, that God has chosen his children, and as a result, they get to call him Father. And this is a a caring father, a loving father. Now, some of you may have always struggled with the idea of God being Father, maybe because of your own father or just because of the the world of fathers. I want to let you know you're not alone, actually. 
What we see by Jesus' day is that his day people struggled with calling God Father. Maybe for a couple of different reasons. Maybe it was because fathers weren't always all that reliable, but maybe it felt like he should be more. We can't call him Father. He's God. He's so much bigger. He's so much greater. He's so much above us. In John 5, when Jesus is, um, when the Jews set out to kill him, here's what we read in John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Not only did Jesus say he's my father, what did Jesus teach us to pray? My fa- our, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. As followers of Christ, we get the opportunity to have this special relationship with God that his people had. He chose them, he's chosen us, and as a result, we get to be his children. So God is telling his people, I have loved you, and as a result, you should call me father. It's right that you call me father, for I am, but you don't honor me, though you know what honor is due a father. Second, you call me master, but you don't show me fear. Now, fear here is reverent awe. It's it's fear that's appropriate to the God of the universe who created all things and with words spoke all things into creation and with his words can destroy all things. That is the God we worship. Not only the God who loved us so much to say, I am your father and I've chosen you, but the God who is king of kings and lord of lords and deserves healthy fear and reverent awe for who he is. A commentary this week put it this way. To fear God is to express loyalty to him and faithfulness to his covenant. Those who fear God exhibit trust in him and obedience to his commands. According to Old Testament, those who fear God obtain his protection, his wisdom, and his blessing. We fear God for who he is, and in turn, he cares for us. We recognize that he is our master. So this verse is the, the framework for the entire rest of the passage. The entire rest of the passage is based on this question. I'm your father and your master, and yet you don't show me honor or fear that I'm due. What we're about to see is what that looks like. How are they not doing that? And then what they're called to do, what they should be doing. God's people have despised his names, he tells us, by their failure to respond. So let's pick up at the end of verse 6. But you say, how we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. See, here's how. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? You see, both the priests and the people knew what was expected of them. And what was expected of them was not that they would bring to the offering to the temple animals that were blind animals that were lame, animals that were sick. In fact, throughout the entire Old Testament, through Exodus and Deuteronomy and beyond, we're reminded that God deserves our best, our first fruit. In Deuteronomy, the people are warned, but if you bring a sacrifice and it has any blemish, if it's lame or blind or has a serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. God deserves our first fruit and he deserves our best. And what we see here throughout this passage as we unpack it is a people who want to save their best for themselves or for what they might make at the market. But God, God will be okay with the thing I can't sell, with the thing that's going to die tomorrow. He'll be okay with that kind of worship, right? The people knew what was expected of them, and they ignored it. The priests knew, and they ignored it and blessed the people who were doing wrong. Well, God goes on to say, you know how to show honor. It's not that you don't have a framework for this. Just think about how you honor your governor. 
Now, in the ancient Persian world, every sort of, tribute, uh, every sort of area of the, uh, of the Persian Empire had to give a yearly tribute to the Persians. It was a, an offering, a, a offering to them, a gift to them. It was financial, it was material, it was all sorts of things. And, and you would bring that to the local representative, and that was your gift to Persia. And as a result of your loyalty to Persia, Persia would care for you. And so the people would have been doing this. They knew what it was to take the best of what they had to give uh, uh, extravagantly to the Persian Empire. And Malachi says, take what you give me and give it to your governor and see how Persia responds. Would they respond favorably? Give them your sick animals. Give them the, the least of your flock. Give them the least of your fields. How would they respond? And God says, that's what you're doing to me. Now, a couple of nerdy moments here for those of you who like nerds and or are nerds and like words. Uh, that was where that was going. Uh, present that to your governor. The governor word here is a Persian word. We know we date this letter by this word. Uh, it's the word that the Persian Empire used for their governors. Another interesting piece is, guess who's a governor under the Persian Empire? Nehemiah. Nehemiah was their governor at this time. They knew what it was like to bring a worthy offering to one of their own who worked for the Persian Empire. But then they would turn around and come to the, the temple and bring to the priest something for God that was pitiful to use the worst of it, or to sort of describe it with, with um, yeah, it was a pitiful offering. Now the question for us is, Daniel, this is really weird. Like, we don't think about empires, we don't think about kings, we don't take offerings and sacrifices. So how do we get our heads around this? I would posit and argue to you that we know what a worthy offering is. We do it often, and especially the gentlemen in the room who have had the blessing of saying, some young lady saying yes to their proposal to marriage, they know what this looks like. Did some research this week, according to the not.com. You guys want to guess what the average engagement ring is these days? $5,900. Okay, so let's get away from the, the side that that's crazy. We should not be spending that kind of money on an engagement ring. Let's get to the other side. We know how to give good gifts to people we want favor from. We know how to honor those we care about and love. We know how to do that. So while the ideas of taking tribute to the Persian Empire or sacrifice to the temple may be strange to us, I would argue that we know what it looks like to give God our best because we do it for people we care and we love about and we love. So God says, you know how to bring your earthly rulers good gifts. So you should know how to bring me good gifts. What's interesting here is that at the end of uh, verse 8 there, present that to your governor. Will he accept it or show you favor? And then the people turn around in verse 9 and say, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. In other words, all right, so we take good gifts to the governor that they might be gracious to us. Now we're going to turn around to the temple. We're going to take terrible gifts and ask God to be gracious to us. What hypocrisy? What, what sort of duplicity? What sort of... Um, short-sightedness that they could give God the least of what they have and expect him to give, be gracious to them. The truth is, church, though, isn't this just like us? You guys have probably heard the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. When, when things are going well, when things are great, we often will do lip service to God. We'll show up at church. We'll kind of check the boxes. But it's in moments of crisis when maybe we're paying the consequences for our sin that we cry out to God and say, God, would you get me out of this? Would you help me? And I think sometimes God says, wait, hold on. All those times things were going well, you didn't have the time of day for me. And now in crisis, you want me to step in and redeem you and save you? Now we know that over the, the course of Scripture, God does that. God is gracious. And, and he does step into his people's lives and redeem them. He, we know he does that for us. But he also allows us to pay the consequences for our sin. 
God says, this is not the kind of worship I desire from you. A worship that gives me the least and then expects me to be gracious. This is not what I I want from you. In fact, in verse 10, we get this strong imagery. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. In essence, close the temple. I wish one of you were brave enough to just close, shut down the temple. Because what's happening day in, day out with offerings and with worship that don't honor me does worse. It dishonors me in my name. And people look at what you're giving me and they think less of me as the great creator God. So Malachi, or God says, I wish one of you would just close the doors of the temple. One of the commentaries I read this week said this is interesting. Not only would it stop the worship, the priest would be out of a job, which, as we'll see in a second, may not have been the worst thing given what they were doing. The idea, though, here in verse 10 is this. God is saying, I take no pleasure in your offerings for your hearts are far from me. If that sounds familiar, it should because it's throughout the entirety of Scripture. A couple hundred years before Malachi, maybe even more than that, we get this from Samuel. Samuel said, says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. And yet, well, so during Samuel's day, he needed to say this. The people needed to hear it. Fast forward a few hundred years later, Malachi's day needed to hear it. And lest you think that was a thing of the past, Jesus says it to the people of his day in Matthew and Mark. He quotes from Isaiah and Ezekiel, and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Teach you a principle, church, about walking with the Lord. If there is a theme that keeps popping up, a challenge that keeps popping up for God's people from Genesis to Revelation, you better believe it's a challenge for us too. That that temptation that was there for them is here for us. And I would argue the same temptation is here for us. That we would honor God with our lips on a Sunday morning, but our hearts are far from him. That we would come and sing songs while our hearts are thinking about our bank accounts or the ball game or, or whatever else is in our world. That we would sit up here and proclaim him as the God who provides while thinking about how we have to provide for our family and not trusting him. So I think the same challenge is something we face as well. So God through Malachi says, I wish somebody would just close the doors. Stop with the sacrifices. Stop with the worship till your heart's get right, and you figure out why you're doing it. And that's really the application of this first section for us. God has rebuked the people for not worshiping him and honoring him as Father and Lord. Church, don't miss this point. We don't worship God because of a to-do list. We worship God because of who he is and who he's made us. He's called us his children. He's called us his followers. He's chosen us, and so now we worship him faithfully. He says, I'd rather you worship me in obedience than you just go through the steps. The people were giving him not what he was due. They were giving him the worst of what they had to offer. What no one would buy at the market they took to the sanctuary. I think a couple of questions for us here is, how would God describe our worship? We say, hey, yeah, you're worshiping me in obedience in your heart and in action. Or would he say, you're really good at putting on the outward appearance, but your heart is far from me. How are we worshiping in our prayers? One of the things that we're trying to really work with our two littles, they're four and seven on is, guys, when we pray, we're coming before the King of Kings, the Creator God, the God of the universe. He expects, or He deserves, not expects, He deserves our attention because they're constantly eating or moving or doing fiddling, doing something. I'm like, guys, if you went before a king in this world, you would not be fiddling. There would be an, a, 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 an instinctive reverence for the queen or the king you stand before. 
So when we come before our Heavenly Father, do we worship Him appropriately and pray appropriately? Are we going through the motions? Is He getting the best of what we have to offer or the last or the least of what we have to offer? Well, from rebuke, God then turns to reminder. Let me remind the people what they should be doing. And, and that way, as I call them out, I can call them back. And so we see in verse 11, he picks it up. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Here he's giving them the end goal. He says, hey, one day, and that's the language here, rising of the sun to setting, uh, Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern language for, this is what will happen in the future. One day, my name will be great. All will worship me. So in light of that truth, people, now worship me now. Worship me faithfully now, for one day my name will be great. And in every place incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. If you know your Old Testament, you know that's one of God's great calls for the Abrahamic blessing. I bless you that you might be a blessing to the nations. You might hear some of this language in your head if you know Isaiah or Romans or Philippians or Hebrews. Because it's the same idea that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So God is saying, I rebuke you, but I want you to remember where we're headed. And as a result of where we're headed to this time where all will worship me, choose to worship me now. And yet the people don't get it. And this is where our hearts break for them. And if I'm honest, for me, because I sometimes think I don't get it. Let's take a look now at verse 12 through 14. God says, that's where we're headed Everyone will worship me. And yet he says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, it being my name, and its fruit. That, it's, that is, its food, may be, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? God's names are important. And they come at with expectation. He's our father and he deserves to be honored. He's our master and he deserves to be feared. And God says, not only have you not honored and feared my name, the things you are doing have caused my name to be despised among the nations where my name is to be worshiped. Now, rather than convicted, do you notice what the people say? They say, what a weariness this is. This is exhausting. God, are you kidding me? Like this, I, yeah, this is just more work than it's worth. Have you ever had that person in your life? It was my grandma. I love my grandma dearly. She's the only grandpa I knew. But she just liked things a certain way. So when we left the bathroom, the towel had to be folded back in a certain way. When we left our room, the bed had to be made in just a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I have to be honest, there were moments in which my heart kind of grew weary of all the expectations grandma had and how I was never living up to them. So there's a part of me that can appreciate this, right? That, that the people are growing weary. And like, this is weariness. Why do we even bother but it's worse than that. They really scoff at God's expectations. They snort at it. They scoff at it. They dismiss it. Oh, God, this really isn't that important. You're not really that important. We're your chosen people. That's enough. God says, rather than bring your best to honor me, you've brought me that which was attacked, that which was lame from birth, that which was sick, that which no one would take. You've brought to me and you pretended like it was a great offering. Look what we brought you, God. Aren't you so pleased? Like, no, not really, actually. I'm not pleased because I am your father and your master. But not only that, take a look at verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord was blemished. 
Think through this for a second. You have that in your flock which you should be offering to God. You tell people, this is what I'm offering. And then you get to the sanctuary or the temple and you offer not that one, but a blemished one. The one you're not supposed to offer. The person who says that, look at how great I am. Look at what I'm giving God. What are they doing that for? It's not for the praise of the Lord. It's for the praise of people around them. Look at how great I am. I'm going to take my best to the sanctuary and maybe I'll pay the priest off to tell you not, what, what, not tell you what I actually took. The idea here is that these people are worshiping for the approval of others. They're worshiping that God, that not that God would praise them and be delighted in them, but that others might praise how great they are. See, God is our Father and our Master and He deserves worship that honors Him and fears Him for who He is. To hit this home, look at how the end of 14 ends. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The book end of this section is you know what will happen, you know what should happen, and yet you're not doing it. God reminds them of what they should be doing. So to recap, God's rebuked them. He's reminded them of what they should be doing here, and then he's going to call them to return to it. But before we get there, I want to ask a couple of questions. How do we respond to God's call on our lives for our worship? Do we grumble? Do we grow weary? Do we scoff? Do we mock it? Do we say, oh, that's, that's something other people do or super religious people do. I don't really need to do that. Do we do it with obedience? Do we, do we worship God with joy? God, you've called me child and I get to call you father. The least I could do is give you the best of what I have which still falls far short of what you deserve. Do we talk a big game so that others will pat us on the back and say, man, you're a good Christian. You got this thing figured out. But then in the secret of our home or in the secret of our hearts, we actually have no relationship with the Lord because it's not about our hearts being connected to him. It's about what others will think of us. I fear that in the South, that's a really easy temptation. I'm going to check the boxes of going to church on Sunday and going to church on Wednesday and tithing, and I'm a good Christian, right? God says, no, your heart is far from me. I don't want those things if your heart's not close to me. So the question that we might ask is, he's rebuked them, he's reminded them, so how might he call them to return? He does that by looking to the leaders. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. The priests who were the ones that helped in worship, the ones that, that taught and instructed the people, the ones who accepted the sacrifices that they should not have accepted, start there. And you lead the people in that which is right. And God's first command is actually indeed a warning. He says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them. Because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. God says, if, if you won't listen, if you won't take this rebuke to heart, if you won't give honor to my name, then I will curse you. Not only that, I'm going to curse your blessings. The idea here is, imagine, maybe picture Hannah, right? Hannah goes to the, the sanctuary, cries out for a son. And she meets with the priest, and the priest says, be blessed. And, and may God give you the, the desires of your heart in this year. 
God's saying those blessings that you give on my people and your role as priest, I'm going to turn to a curse because you are not following me and leading the people in the way they should go. It's like the pastor who says, oh, you're great. You're doing fine. Keep doing you. God loves you. Man, I hope God really prospers that, that deal at work that's not honoring to God. God God's going to take care of you. That's what's happening here. The people are trying to, the priests are trying to bless and encourage the people with that which is wrong. The question for us is the question for the priests, are our hearts teachable? Are we willing to have God call us out and say, will you hear me? Will you obey and will you give honor to my name? God says, if you would do this, priest, if you would return to the worship you know I, I deserve, if you would do it, you would reap the benefits he says, I made a, a covenant with Levi. Levi was the, the tribe that established the priest for Israel, uh, son of Jacob. And God says in verses five and six, he says, my covenant with Levi was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of, of fear that is healthy, reverent fear. He feared me and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was on his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. Probably one of my favorite phrases in this entire section. God says, I'm a covenant-keeping God. If you will do what's right, I will bless you. I will give you life and peace. If you will walk with me in fear and honor my name, if you will teach uh, my words faithfully, if you will turn people from their, their sin and call them back to me, I will bless you. And you will find peace and uprightness in me. Because Levi rightly feared the Lord, he taught that which was right. Because he taught that which was right, he called people back from their iniquity and their sins. What a legacy for a priest. And churches, we're going to find out in a second, this is actually addressed to each one of us. Because of Jesus Christ, as Peter reminded us, this is the priesthood of believers. All single, every single one of us are priests required and called on to love and worship God faithfully, to walk with him rightly, to guard our words, to call others back to him. That is the call for each one of us, that we might experience the life and peace that God has for us. God goes on to say, for there, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You know, one of the things that happens constantly in my job is I get emails and calls from people saying, Daniel, how should I respond to this? How do I think about this theological issue? What should I do here? Man, my prayer is in my fallenness, in my inability to hold everything in tension that the Holy Spirit would lead me to guide you guys faithfully and give you truth. One of the things that I'm most afraid of is getting to heaven and God saying, Daniel, why did you say that? That wasn't me. That wasn't of my word. And look at the ripple effects in this person's life as you gave them wrong instruction. God says if we will guard our knowledge, if as people seek instruction from our mouth, from us, we will teach them rightly according to his word, remembering that we are his messengers, he will bless it. What a noble calling, church, not only to me, but to each one of us in this room. But unfortunately, the people of Malachi's day had stubborn hearts. And this is where our hearts grieve. God goes on to say, but you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble. Where Levi caused many to return, you've caused many to stumble. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, and so I make you despised and abased. 
rather than guarding the truth, rather than turning people back from their sins. The priests of Malachi's day were encouraging them in their sin. They were diminishing the goodness of God's word. They were diminishing the significance of sin, and they were diminishing the need to obey him. Sounds a lot like our world today, unfortunately. Far too many in the church. So what does God tell him? God says, because you've done that, if that's the choice you make, if you don't return and do what's right, you will be despised. People will be disgusted with you, is a way this was translated somewhere else. You will be abased as you'll be humiliated and humbled for your poor leadership and your lack of faithfulness to me. I want to go back to this passage real quick, this one, because uh, there is a, yeah, this one. There, there's a bit of a hurdle here, and I want to make sure you guys don't walk away like, oh, what's going on here? Okay, so look at verse 3. Sorry, I missed this earlier. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your face as the dung of your offerings. This might feel very harsh. Like, God, this is literally rubbing it in their faces. Ugh. Here's the story. In the Old Testament, one of the things you learn about with sacrifices is you're bringing sheep and goats right to the temple, and those sheep and goats are doing their business, and so you've got to have somebody to clean the temple grounds, and what do you do with the stuff that comes out of a sheep and goats behind? You don't leave it in the temple because it's not a holy, worthy offering. You scoop it up, you collect it, you take it outside the city, and you dump it. What God is saying here is your worship that isn't faithful to me, your leading as priest that isn't faithful to me is like the dung that comes out of the sheep and goats. And the only thing it's good for is to be dumped outside the city. So, didn't want us to get hung up on that. Apologies, I missed it. But this is a strong word. God's name matters. As father, he deserves our honor. As master, he deserves our reverent fear. And he's calling us to worship him as such. Guys, we have the incredible privilege of not only calling the God of the universe father and master if we know Christ, but I was just thinking through all the other names we've looked at over the last six months. We'd call Jesus Redeemer and Lord and Savior and God and brother and friend. How might those names shape the way we worship him? One of the things that's true about this story is though the people were giving God their worst, what did God give for us? His very best his only son, the perfect spotless lamb. Because the truth is that 400 years after this, when Jesus comes on the scene, things haven't gotten better. People didn't hear this. They didn't respond with a contrite heart. And God gave his very best to the people who couldn't even respond here. That's the kind of God we worship. And so we think about a God who, who loves us enough to rebuke us, to remind us, to call us to return to him. That is the God that does that the one who chose us and loved us. Oh, that we might respond in worship to him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, that your love is so great for us as your people that you would call us out just as you did the Israelites and your people in Malachi's day. Father, you know that this week has been a, a a hard week for me in wrestling with this text with you because I realize, Lord, that far too often I bring worship that's lip service. And my heart and my mind is preoccupied with things at home or things on my to-do list rather than worshiping the God who deserves all honor and praise and glory. Lord, thank you for calling me back to faithfully worship you. 
Lord, for anyone in this room who this morning has been challenged to, to, to come back to worship you for who you are, I pray, would you walk them in that? I thank you for your grace and your love to rebuke them and call them back just as you have me. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that one day we will worship you in all tongues and people will confess you as Lord. And we look forward to that day. But Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege of getting to do it today. And Lord, I pray for teachable hearts in myself and in this community of believers, Lord, that we would return to you and walk with you and do what you've called us to do in response to all that you've done for us. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for the incredible sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.